0: Good afternoon, St. Paul's. Good afternoon. Hope everyone's doing well. So uh, two weeks ago, we concluded our eight-week series in the book of Colossians. And I was reflecting on that a little bit and recognizing that that was exciting for me as a first-time pastor, because it's the first time I've ever taught through a whole book of the Bible. You know, So I was thinking that was pretty cool. And uh, I was thinking, OK, so that's one book of the Bible. 65 more to go, and uh, I figure here's how things break down. So Colossians was four chapters, and that took us eight weeks, right? So that's about two weeks a chapter. Now there's 1,189 chapters in the Bible, so assuming that pace of two weeks for each chapter, that means we need about 2,000, oh yeah, sorry, we got rid of four, so we've taken care of four chapters, so we're down to 1,185 Assuming two weeks a chapter times 1,185 chapters, that's 2,370 weeks that we need uh, to make it through the whole Bible. 2,370 weeks divided by 52, 45.57 years. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I hope none of you are planning on going anywhere anytime soon. So we have a long way to go. Of course, I don't. Actually expect to preach through all the books of the Bible in my lifetime I bring this up because I think it's important for us to recognize how massive the project of knowing Scripture really is and I think knowing Scripture is very important. I think we should be striving Daily to learn more and more of God's Word, but I take some comfort in knowing that our entrance into heaven is not a quiz on scripture, you know, where we have to demonstrate comprehensive Bible knowledge, because if it was, I think we'd all really struggle. <laughs> so thank the Lord that we're saved by grace. Um, but that said, I, uh, I do want to start a new book of the Bible. So uh, we're going to be working this summer through the book of James. And uh, James is a book that I appreciate a lot. It's a very practical book. Um, And the passage we're looking at today talks about a very practical subject, which is what to do when we face trials, what to do when we face difficulty and pain. And this is obviously a practical subject because trials are a part of life. Some of us seem to have particularly good luck, others of us not so good luck. Uh, But the truth is that even the most fortunate among us eventually have to endure some kind of trial. And in preparation for this message, I did a quick scan of my Facebook friends list. And uh, I asked myself, okay, if I just start scanning through this list and I ask myself the question, what's a, a recent trial that I know these people have been through, what does it look like? So I did that, and here's what my list looked like. Chronic depression and anxiety, lost the ends of her fingers in an accident with a horse, lung cancer, failed engagement, severe acid reflux, agoraphobia, traumatic concussion, breathing problems, abusive boyfriend, absentee father, cerebral palsy, mother died last week, Sudden and total loss of hearing in one ear last month. Chronic insomnia for years. Obsessive-compulsive disorder. Mouth cancer. Another failed engagement. Long-term unemployment. Has a niece that will die without extraordinarily expensive treatment. Unable to walk without assistance after a massive stroke. Prone to seizures. Recently lost her infant daughter. Alcoholic. And I checked to see how much of my Facebook friends list I looked through, and then I compared that to the total. It was actually only 4% of my friends list. I could find all of those trials just in 4%. So trials are a part of life. We all experience them. And I don't say that to make light of them. Just because they happen a lot doesn't make them easier. Life is hard. I know that because I'm living it and because I see your prayer cards every week. I know that there are people here going through trials. Chances are you're at least experiencing a minor minor trial right now. And if you're not experiencing a major trial, if you live long enough, eventually you do. Not to sound pessimistic, but it happens. So what James has to say here is very, very practical and it's very relevant for all of us. Uh, If you want to follow along in your Bible, I'm going to be reading from James 1, 1 through 8. Uh, It'll be up on the screen too, but James 1, 1 through 8. And before we read this, let's just say a quick prayer. Lord, we thank you uh, for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to look at it together. We pray that your Holy Spirit would guide us, God. We pray that you would Give us insight into what we read, Lord. And uh, we pray that you would help us to understand through James's words here uh, how to face trials and how to do it well in a way that pleases you and um, that helps us to handle those trials. Uh, we ask for your for your leading and pray that you would bring your illumination in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. James 1, 1 through 8. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. So in this advice that James offers, I see at least three major points of action. Uh, Three things that he's saying that we should be doing when facing trials and those are what I'd like to focus on today And I want to say that this is not a comprehensive list when it comes to facing trials I think there's there's a lot more that could be said about what we need to do when we're in the midst of a trial But these are the three things that I think uh, James wants to call our attention to But before we identify those I want to talk a little bit about those opening words Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. How do we feel about that? (laughs) Consider it pure joy. I'll confess that when I look at those words in isolation, they're a little annoying. (laughs) Especially if you substitute that phrase, trials of many kinds, with something more specific, something that actually represents your trial. You know, consider it pure joy whenever you face cancer. Uh, Consider it pure joy whenever you face depression and anxiety. Consider it pure joy whenever your kids have drug addictions. I want to say, I'm sorry, James, but I don't consider it pure joy when those things are happening. And if I were to put a big smile on my face and say, oh, what pure joy I feel, after getting a cancer diagnosis or getting fired or losing a loved one, I feel like I'd be faking it. And part of me thinks as I read those words, James, isn't, isn't this dangerous advice? Isn't this the kind of advice that leads people to, to pretend that they're fine even though they're not? My generation is the millennial generation. I know we have some millennials here. I checked, I'm like right on the edge, but I am technically a millennial. And uh, and millennials are known for, for really valuing authenticity in the church. That's sort of the buzzword, authenticity. And when I read James's words here, I can feel that millennial concern rising up in me. And it says, James, are you asking people to be fake? Are you asking people to pretend that they're unaffected by their trials? Are you asking them to just, you know, put a plastic grin on their face? I don't know if I want to be part of a community where everyone's doing that. Well, I think that if we look a little closer at this passage, we can say confidently that that's not what James is asking us to do. He's not telling us to pretend that our trials are no big deal. Notice he doesn't say, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds, because your trials aren't really that bad. No, he says, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance." See, when he says that these trials develop perseverance, he's acknowledging that they're hard, right? Because you don't develop perseverance by like eating a bowl of ice cream or taking a nap. You develop perseverance by doing something that's hard, that's difficult, that takes effort. So there's an honesty in what James is saying here. He's saying that we should have joy in the midst of our trials. But this joy doesn't come from being unaffected by our trials. It's not a joy that that comes from pretending that everything is easy or fine. It's a joy that comes from knowing that even though things are not easy or fine, in the midst of our trials, we're learning how to persevere. You know, we're we're learning uh, the joy that comes from knowing that we're learning how to press on and keep moving, even when it hurts. And to put it more generally, it's a joy that comes from knowing that we're growing in maturity. Verse 4 says, perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So it's possible to have joy in the midst of trials, not because the trials are easy, not because they're no big deal, but because the trials are an opportunity for our faith to mature. They're an opportunity for us to grow. Uh, Good stories recognize this idea. I bet you have never watched a movie that you enjoyed that didn't have a major trial in it. A trial is necessary for a good story. Because the trial is necessary to reveal the character of the hero. So we're supposed to have joy in trials because we know that through those trials God's developing our character and he's helping us to become mature. But That idea can only give us joy if we have a particular understanding of the point of life. If we think that the point of life is to be comfortable and financially secure and popular, then this idea is not going to be much comfort. But if we believe that the purpose of our lives is to become more like Jesus, to have our character transformed into his character, then this idea can give us joy. Because even though trials might steal away our comfort, or our finances, or our social status, they can't prevent us from becoming more like Jesus. And in some cases, they can actually help us to become more like Jesus. I actually had this realization personally a few years ago. I was, I was dealing with a lot of uncertainty about my career path, about my future, And I was dealing with some regret about past decisions, feeling like I had kind of set myself up for failure in life. And uh, I had this moment where I felt comforted, comforted because it hit me that God's primary will for my life is not for me to have a certain job or to marry a particular woman or to have a certain number of kids, but that God's primary will for my life was to become more like Jesus. Not in terms of my physical appearance, although sometimes I worry that people think that, (laughs) Um, but in terms of my character and in terms of the way that I treat people and the way that I live and the way I relate to to God. And when I viewed my life as a journey, as an adventure, as a story of a person learning how to become more like Jesus, then I felt free. Not because that's an easy task. It's not, but because I realize if that's the purpose of my life, if that's what it's all about, then nothing can take that away. I realize if I'm single for the rest of my life, my character can still become more like Jesus. If I'm married, my character can become more like Jesus. If I make a lot of money, my character can become more like Jesus. If I'm poor, my character can become more like Jesus. If I'm a truck driver, my character can become more like Jesus. If I'm a pastor, hopefully, my character can become more like Jesus. Every morning when I wake up, regardless of what happened the day before, I have an opportunity to become more like Jesus. Other opportunities fade. My opportunity to become a professional soccer player, I think that's over which I never even liked soccer and was never any good at it, so it's not like there was any legitimate opportunity there. But I'm just saying I'm 32 years old, so if the point of my life was to become a professional soccer player, I think that opportunity is gone, right? And if that was the point, then I missed the whole purpose. But thank the Lord, the purpose of my life is to become more like Jesus. And as long as I'm alive, that opportunity will be there. And trials can't take that away. And in fact, trials can make it, so that that purpose is actually realized. So to put it simply, here's what I think James is saying. If you're filling out your outlines, this is the first thing. I know it took us a while to get here, but first thing is, we need to remind ourselves of what life is all about. And what is life all about? Life is about learning to be more like Jesus. It's about becoming mature and complete, which is exactly what Jesus was. The second thing that we need to do in order to face trials well is to ask God for wisdom. Ask God for wisdom. James says in verse 5, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. When we're in the midst of a trial, sometimes what we think we need the most is financial blessing or physical healing. But what we need even more than those things is wisdom. Wisdom is the ability to look at a situation from God's perspective. It's the ability to, like we just talked about, remind ourselves of what life is all about. And here's the great news that James gives us. The good news is that God wants to give us wisdom. He says God gives generously to who? to all. And then he gives these very encouraging words, um, without finding fault. So when you ask God for wisdom, he doesn't say, well, let me think about it. He doesn't say, well, you know, you messed up. You messed up in the past, so I think I'm going to withhold that from you. No, because regardless of what's gone on in the past, God wants you to have wisdom now. He wants you to have the right perspective. We often wonder, what's God's will for my life? Well, here's one thing you can be sure of. God wants you to have wisdom. So when you find yourself in a trial, when you're in an overwhelming situation where you don't know what to do, I just encourage you, just go before the Lord in prayer and ask God for wisdom. Just ask. Most of us at some point have had a generous friend or neighbor, or if you have a problem, you know, you you ask them, maybe you're working on something and you ask your friend for a wrench but then he offers you like the entire toolbox and he has all this advice because he knows about what you're working on and he wants to to help you with it. Um, I've known friends and neighbors like that. Sometimes they can be a little annoying because it's like, no, I just wanted the wrench. And I think sometimes when we go to God and ask for wisdom, we can feel the same way because God doesn't just give us just what we wanted, but sometimes he gives us a lot more. And he says, actually, you're gonna need this whole toolbox and I'm gonna give you a whole bunch of things to work on. You have problems that you don't even know about. I'm going to reveal facets of your problem that you didn't realize. But in the long run, it's going to be better for you. So ask. The third thing that James says we need to do when facing trials comes from verses 6 through 8. James says, but when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does." Now, this is, these verses are kind of tough, and I hope you'll bear with me, because I, I do want to focus on them for a little while. Um, because I think it's important, before we talk about what they mean, to talk about what they don't mean. Um, because I believe that people have taken these verses out of context, and that they have been abused, and that they've caused some pain for people. Because what some people do is they look at these verses on their own, disconnected from the surrounding context, and they say that what James is saying is that God wants to come to come us to come to him with our requests, and if we believe 100% that those things that we're requesting are going to happen, then God is going to give them to us. But if we have any doubt at all, then we don't. Now, I think that this is a dangerous thing. Um, You can imagine what this leads to, especially uh, when it comes to the issue of physical healing. It leads to the belief that if someone isn't healed of something, whether it's cancer, multiple sclerosis, Alzheimer's, whatever, uh, the reason is because the person praying for their healing doubted. And I want us to recognize the harm that this interpretation can cause. I think it's harmful for two primary reasons. So the first reason is, it, is because it puts an incredible burden on the person praying. A huge burden. Because whether you're praying for yourself or someone that you love, if the, prayer, if the healing doesn't happen, whose fault is it? It's all your fault. And that's a heavy burden to carry. Another reason it's a heavy burden to carry is because it asks you to be psychologically certain. And I think the truth is that when it comes to something like if our prayer for a person's healing is going to happen right here and now on Earth, it's very rare that we can be 100% certain of something like that. I think certainty is a privilege that God has, and that's why we have to walk by faith. And I think that when we have to be dishonest with ourselves in some way, or dishonest before God, or like pretend, then that can also be dangerous. So I don't think that's healthy. The second reason this understanding of verses 6 through 8 is harmful is because of the picture of God it gives us. The picture of God it gives us. Um, I'll describe what I think it's like. It's kind of like it's saying God has got a a present. something you really want. And he holds it out and he says hey, I've got this, this gift box for you, and I want you to have it, but I'm not going to give it to you unless you're 100% sure that I'm going to give it to you. And so you reach out to grab it, and then he goes, mm, uh-uh. No, no, see, you weren't 100% sure I was going to give it to you. Try again. And so he holds it out for you again, and you think, okay, I, 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 I think he wants me to have it. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm sure. But of course, he did pull it away last so you reach for it again, and then God, God detects that, that uncertainty, and he goes, Uh uh uh, you had to be 100% sure, or I'm not going to give it to you. Do you see how this is an unfortunate picture of God? It's not really the character of a generous and loving father, it seems more, more like a cruel mind game. And it's especially cruel if you imagine that that box contains, say, the cure to a child's cancer. Or healing from a spinal injury. So I'm begging you, (laughs) don't make the mistake of thinking that in verses 6 through 8, James is saying that God God is demanding that we be 100% certain of whatever we're asking, or He's not going to give it to us. The good news is that when we look at these verses in context, we can see that this harmful interpretation isn't supported. Because, first of all, James isn't talking about physical healing or financial blessing, right? He's specifically talking about when we ask for wisdom, right? He's not saying when you ask for healing from cancer, you must believe and not doubt in order to be healed from cancer. He's saying when you ask for wisdom, you must believe and not doubt. Now, you might say, well, hold on a second here. Isn't this strange picture of God still here? You know, it's just God's holding a box out, and he's saying, hey, I got this big old box of wisdom for you, (laughs) and I want to give it to you, but you've got to be 100% sure that I want to give it to you. Otherwise, I'm not going to give it to you. Okay, well, I'm going to say that's not the image James is presenting here, and I'm going to argue for why. So we're going to just get slightly technical. Bear with me. It all depends on how we understand this word that gets translated as doubt in our Bibles. The word in the Greek here is this word word, diakrino. And when someone diakrinos, what they're doing is they're evaluating or judging competing ideas. And there's a few translations out there, including the King James Version, that translate diakrino not as doubt, but as to waver. To waver. Now, doubt is a form of wavering, right? Like say, you doubt the existence of God. If somebody doubts the existence of God, they're wavering between two options. God exists or God doesn't exist. And they're trying to decide. They're evaluating and judging competing ideas, and they're wavering between the two. But doubt as we understand it is a very specific form of wavering. It's wavering between intellectual certainty and uncertainty. But there's other kinds of wavering, right? Like, you can waver between whether you're going to obey God or disobey God. And that doesn't really have to do with intellectual certainty. That's something else, right? And what I'd like to suggest is that the kind of wavering that James is talking about here is the kind of wavering that happens when you're trying to decide to pay attention to God's wisdom or the world's wisdom. So going back to that illustration of God, with the gift box. Here's what I think the illustration is that James is actually presenting. You've got the Lord, he's presenting you with the gift box. He says, this is a box of wisdom, and I want to give this to you. It's a generous box of wisdom, and I want you to have it. You just have to come and take it. But, you have to take my box. See that other guy over there who's trying to offer you a box? You can't take his box, you have to to take mine. See the difference there? Because while God is offering us wisdom, the world is also offering us its wisdom. But it's not real wisdom. Most of it's foolishness. And what James is saying is that if we waver, if we try to combine God's wisdom with the world's wisdom, or alternate back and forth between the two, we're just gonna end up confused. We're gonna end up Uh, being like the waves of the sea tossed by the wind. And we're not gonna get what we need to face our trials. So, it took us a while to get here, but I believe the third point that James is making about facing trials is that we need to trust in God's wisdom, not the world's. We need to trust in God's wisdom, not the world's. The world's wisdom says it's okay to cheat a little to get ahead. But God's wisdom says we should do everything with integrity. The world's wisdom says, you know, only give attention to those who can hire your social status. But God's wisdom says, treat the least of these like you would Christ himself. And what James is saying is that when we ask for wisdom, and God gives it to us, we can't waver. can't waver between the world's wisdom and his wisdom. We have to decide to say what God says. I'm going to follow that. And that isn't necessarily an easy thing to do, but it's a lot better image of God, isn't it, than the one that's playing games with us? Now, I realize that with everything I've said here, it's easier said than done. When we're in the midst of trials, it can be really, really hard to remind ourselves of what life is all about can be really hard to stop and ask God for wisdom. And it can be really, really, really hard to trust in God's wisdom instead of the world's. But you know what's even harder? Not doing those things. Going through a trial without knowledge of the wisdom of God, without the perspective that He gives us. That, that is super hard. That can lead to complete despair. But when we see God's wisdom, when we see things through His eyes, when we remember what the story of our lives is really about we don't have to despair and not only that but we can feel a steadfast sincere joy surrounding us even in the midst of our pain and our tears let's pray Lord Jesus We thank you that you don't leave us alone in our trials. And we thank you, God, that you offer us a perspective on life that makes it possible for us to persevere and endure. God, I pray that you would help us to recognize you for the good and generous Father that you are. We thank you that you long to give us wisdom and that we can receive it. And we pray, Lord, that uh, you would give us the, the courage to receive and and act on the wisdom that you reveal to us, uh, rather than flirting with the world's wisdom. And Lord, I pray for anyone here who's going through a trial. I pray that they would sense your presence, your loving embrace, Lord, carrying them through that trial, reminding them that you too know what it's like uh, to suffer and endure the, the pain of the world as you did on the cross, Lord. We ask that you continue to give us your perspective, Lord, and help us to remember that this is a journey of becoming more like you. In Jesus' name, amen.